All right, so let's uh, let's get into our uh, lesson for uh, for today. Okay, so so now what has happened from last week? We remember the story of how Shechem, who is the son of Hamer, he uh, became quite smitten with uh, Jacob's youngest daughter, in fact, only daughter, Dinah. And so then he had sex with her, and she was not, they were not married. And so in those days, that would have been considered a sexual assault of some kind. It's just kind of odd for us to think of it that way, because the Bible uses that word rape, but given the way that Shechem was responding to her, and obviously maybe her to him, it just was that they called it that because they were not married, and because um, the families had not given their A-OK over this relationship. So they did it kind of the opposite, where normally you go to the the fathers meet together and they work out some sort of uh, financial arrangement, and then there's uh, hopefully love, but you don't know, and so then they have a big deal, and now they're married. Well, now they're doing it the opposite way, where they had sex before they before uh, the marriage took place. So anyway, um, Jacob hears about it, but he doesn't do anything, right? And so then he waits until the brother, his sons all get home. For They've been out in the fields. They come back, and they're incensed, and they're ready to, hmm, we're going to do something bad. So what happens is two of the brothers go to Hamer, who is the father, and says, uh, he says, well, I would definitely want my son to marry uh, your sister. And they said, well, it, we would like that idea if only. Now, what's the if only? That condition that they had presented to Shechem and to Hamer that they would have to do in order for them to give the okay to marry their sister and Jacob's daughter. What was the uh, what was the thing? Yeah. So they said, we're all circumcised in our family, and we're not. It's not okay in our religion or in our family for uh, her to marry somebody who's not circumcised. So you have to be circumcised, and on top of that, every male in the city has to be circumcised. Right. So then Hamer said, "Oh, that's a good deal." So. So Hammer said, but how am I going to convince the other people? So he went to the city gates to meet with uh, other men that were there in the city. And what did he say to them that would convince them that this was a really good deal? What did he say? He said that when this happens, then they will be part of us and we'll be part of them, right? And then uh, we'll marry their daughters and they can marry our daughters and then we can have all this sort of exchange of goods. And then he added this little extra perk on top of it. He said, and all their livestock will become ours. Ah, yeah. So that put it over the top and the man said, hey, this is a good deal. So what they all decided to do was do it or have it done, right? I don't guess you actually do it, but you have it done. All right. All right. So now we pick it up in verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, yes, we can, we can relate to that, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamer and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. 
the sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Just a little over the top, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that I proposed last week in thinking about this, in addition to the fact that this is a very tribal thing, all right, these people are, are, are thinking tribally. And when you think tribally and you operate tribally, then the idea of honor killing is a norm. So do you know what honor, do you know what honor killing is? Kind of, we can sort of figure that out, out. So it's the idea, and it was very much the Canaanite way to live, which was your enemy is my enemy. So if somebody does something to somebody in my family, even if it's not directly related, it was here, but even if it wasn't, like a cousin or something, then everybody in the family marshals their forces and goes after and seeks some form of revenge against the perpetrating family or the perpetrating uh, uh, party. And so in some sense of it, it kind of makes sense in terms of how they handled this was that they said, okay, this this uh, thing has happened to our sister. She's defiled now. She is not virgin anymore. That's going to make it harder for her later in life. So what we're going to do is just just wipe everything out, take everything that belongs to us or that we used to belong to them. So, But here's the thing. What now happens to the meaning and the significance of circumcision? See, what happens to it? Because originally circumcision was given as a gift from God as a way of saying you're part of a relationship with me. You, we're, we're, we're in this family together. We're in this community together, as Pastor Coleman talked about. So there's this, this sense of a religious value to it or a spiritual value to it. Well, now what have they done to that spiritual value is they've corrupted it because now they look at it as something that says, um, we can use this, and that's what they did. They used it. In some sense, we might say today they weaponized it, right? And so in that sense, there's a greater loss, a greater loss, because when you lose the religious or spiritual significance of something, or you just simply swap it out for something else, right? Then it becomes something now that I can use in a manipulative way rather than using it in the way it was intended by God in terms of the gift that it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now you think, could that happen today? Could it happen today? What might be a way that could happen today? I'll just sip on my coffee while you think about that. The dispute about baptism? The dispute about baptism? Yeah, okay. it becomes weaponized. So say more about that. Well, people say, well, if you weren't immersed, you're not really baptized. Oh, okay. That would be one way to do that, to sort of cast doubt on how much water you received or how uh, far under you went when you got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that would be, so one way that we can, that we would do that, we would say one is in and the other one isn't. That would be one way that that could happen. I'm kind of thinking of, 
We haven't heard so much about it recently, but do you remember, was it back in the 70s or 80s when uh, the Protestants versus the Catholics in Northern Ireland and some of those, was that, am I getting my dates mixed up or is that kind of when, when that all was happening? Yeah, where here, it's, there it wasn't, the fight was not between uh, Christians and Muslims. It wasn't like the, uh, the Crusades or anything. Here it was between people that were Christian, right? But it was this idea of your form of Christianity versus my form of Christianity, and now we're going to use that as a way to uh, to to have war with each other. So so again, it it it's the first time that this happens here, right? And we'll see later, maybe you know, years later, what is the consequence of that. But again, as part of it is is to not ever take for granted the the beauty of what is a part of our faith. And yet sometimes, I know, sometimes say, people say, oh, you're making such a big deal about a little thing. Well, first of all, circumcision, not such a little thing. But, but it's the idea of it is that it's easy to do that. It's easy to say, well, that's a minor thing, and we need to major in the majors and not worry about the minors. When I hear that, I got little hairs in the back of my neck because I know that the way that you can erode your faith over time is that you start chopping away at the little stuff. And usually what happens is when the little stuff goes, then it doesn't take very long before the big stuff doesn't have a leg to stand on, right? And so again, that's just, it's, it's a caution there for us and maybe just a little bit of a, a thinking it through in terms of what actually happened here. Any thoughts about this? Marvin, yeah. Kind of like what you were talking about last week of not passing along and reminding people of the stories, the background, right. you know, to generation after right. generation, the next generation. Right. Uh, similar, similar thing to yeah. not, not forget the little things. Yeah, to not forget the little things um, because those are that's part of the fabric, that's part of the mosaic that holds things together. So we, we, we should not or we ought not to do that. Yeah, sure. Do you think they had this planned that they to have them all circumcised, and then, or then you think it's, they were all circumcised, they thought, hey, they're all down, we'll kill them. I think it was, was it more premeditated than that? Yeah, because the previous chapter said that they were speaking deceitfully to uh, Shechem and Hamar. So they already knew, uh, now, you know, whether they thought that it would be as um, vast devastation, maybe that was more of a, the crime of opportunity, you know, here it is, everybody's dead. Hey, whoa, we better just take our stuff, you know. And so that maybe that became an opportunity, right? And it, it is kind of interesting that it says that um, Simeon and Levi, who were two of Jacob's sons, but then it says in verse 27, the sons of Jacob came upon us. So, so apparently the two of them did the deed and then and then the rest of them, the other ten showed up or the other nine showed up and uh, then then simply had their way. Okay? All right, well, let's see what happens. Verse uh, 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, me uh, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? So notice now there is a clash of uh, motivations, if you will, in terms of 
what the sons were thinking and what Jacob is thinking. Now, Jacob, we don't get the sense here that Jacob, that his regret is that they did it as much as the enormity of how they did it, right? And then the extent to which uh, they did it. So you don't get, you don't, it's hard to read into this and think, okay, what, what, was, what was Jacob's real thoughts about this? Because he was more worried about then the tribal aspect of this, that if, uh, if my guys go and wipe out all of your guys, then all your cousins from the Perizzites and from the Canaanites are going to say, hey, we owe this revenge. And so now you get this constant sort of uh, escalation, if you will, of, uh, of problems there. But notice also, he's calling them out. And in some sense of that, he's calling them to repentance, right? If you want to attach a spiritual element to this, that he's saying, this is what you've done, and I can't believe that you did that. What is their response, though, in terms of how they respond to this calling out that their dad, that their father does? Yep, they justify it, right? They say, well... He had it coming, because look what he did to our sister. All right, well, let's see what happens. Chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, And the terror of God fell on all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. All right, so where is Jacob when he gets this directive from God that now it's time to go to Bethel? Where is he? He's at Shechem, right? That's where he is, and that's where all this this drama took place with Dinah and now the killing and all those kinds of things. So what's very interesting is, is that the the verse that or the word that this verse starts out with in chapter 35 is the word then right then and what that suggests is is that god is in charge of where they go and when they go that he was not yet ready for jacob and his entourage to go to bethel but now that all of this has happened right now it's ready And so he's saying, now go, and when you get there. Now, remember, let's remember, okay, Bethel, what what happened at Bethel? Stairway to heaven, right? There we go. Okay, so we got to remember that. That was the big thing. So that's where uh, uh, Jesus at the top, the angels ascending, descending, and that's where uh, uh, Jacob said, oh, this must be a special place. So he said, I'm going to build an altar there, a a high point there, set up a stone. We're going to do all the stuff that is going to indicate that this is a special place. It becomes a touchstone. 
We've talked about that a little bit in terms of in the past, where a touchstone of faith is a place where a significant event took place in, uh, in one's spiritual life, okay? And so it's an important thing to have touchstones of faith in your life, to have places where you can go or things that you can uh, uh, look at and remember that, oh, that's where that happened. That's where that happened. This is when God spoke to me, and this is when uh, the vision of the stairway and all that occurred. I know I've asked you this at different times. Do you have touchstones of your faith, places where you go or things that you uh, sort of say that is significant to me in terms of my faith walk or my uh, maturation as a Christian? Do any of you have touchstones? Pardon? (laughs) Mine is in Phoenix, yes. Yes, it is, now that you mention it, yes. But it it can be a place where you felt closer to God in some way, yeah? Or where some significant change in your life occurred, right? And so the idea of it, again, is that, and we see this in, in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for sure, in all of their journeys everywhere that they went, it seems like that, that one of the first things that they did was they built an altar, right? And that altar became a place where they go back to and say, here's where God was. Now, does that mean, oh, that's the only place where God is? No, that's not what that is. But it's a way of connecting your heart and your mind to some action of God toward you in a personal way, okay? So I would really encourage that to maybe um, open your mind up a little bit, open your heart up a little bit to the idea that there might actually be more of those touchstone kinds of things that you've had in your life, and maybe just didn't think about it that way. Yeah, Gina? I had one when I came back from college. Yeah? When you came back from college? Yeah, Where did you go to college, by the way? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. You probably needed more spirituality when you came back from there anyway, so. (laughs) You know, I know that one guy, Mahomes. Oh, did you know him? (laughs) (laughs) Can you get his autograph for me? Yeah, okay. When I came back and wanted to get into some sort of study, and mom and my sister wanted to get set up. Oh, yeah, and they yeah, talked yeah. to me about it, and uh-huh. then I got into that and did it for eight years and got a stronger relationship with God. Sure, sure. So it was more her flood and David's flood. But that was a big step for me. Yeah. And so do you think of when you are, are you still in BSF today? No, I did it for eight years. They only had eight at that time. Oh, yeah. And okay. then when I finished that, I wanted something similar mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And that's when they told me about Jordan's Wifers class. Oh, so I got into that yeah. and got to know. Right. So, sure. so well, I, I think what I'm hearing you say, though, is that that became a, uh, or was for you, uh, something that moved your faith along from... Um, whatever college form of faith we have, to something a little bit more, um, yeah, deeper and and more. That's right. That's right. So that became that for you. And again, that's not, it's not attached to a place per se, but it's attached to a, uh, a, a, a something that you went to 
and and that memory is in your head. That see, one of the beauties of, of that is is that it's another way to stay grateful. Okay, it's another way to stay grateful because when you go back to the memory of that, you're grateful for what it did, right? And sometimes I think we get so wrapped up in our lives every day and hassles and, you know, all the stuff going on that we don't really allow ourselves that opportunity to go back to a touchstone and remember what God did for you and attach the meaning of that, of what God did for you. And from that attachment can come a sense of gratitude. Oh, yeah, that's right. God did speak to me that day. Yeah. I just think sometimes... You have to move on in your life before you can look back and say, wow, that was the time you think, oh, it's just circumstance, or just happening, but then as you go on in your life, you look back and see these different times that God's hand is moving you towards something. And we make judgments about whether God is present or whether God is cares about us or loves us in the moment. And, you know, it is kind of a hard sell when you're hurting to sort of say, oh, yeah, God loves me and he's really there for me. I mean, that's really hard to do. Right. But but if you look back in retrospect to your life and have those touchstones along the way, see where God's leading. That's right. You don't. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Great point. Great point. Well, so they're on their way. And what he says is in order for us to be ready. Okay. Because see, Bethel was the, the stopping place before they get to back to where Isaac and the family and that whole thing is. Okay. So they're on their way. And so part of the preparation for that is to do something with the foreign gods. Now, what is this about? Okay, well, remember the whole story with Laban. See, but Laban's gods are missing still. Jacob doesn't know that Rachel's is the one that stole them, right? He doesn't know that. And so, but with all of their uh, people that are part of their, of their household, the servants and slaves and everybody, okay, they would have come from the neighboring communities of the Canaanites. That's where they would have come from. Well, the Canaanites, they didn't believe in one God. They believed in a lot of gods. And so they would bring all these little uh, icons with them. Part of it was because the belief was is that wherever the physical locality of my little God is, then I have protection. My household will be prosperous based on the fact that I have that little God with me. Okay. Now imagine living your life like that. Okay. Instead of having the confidence that there's one God over everything, right? That I have to make sure that I take my little gods with me so that I can have protection and prosperity and things can go well. That's why Laban was so upset that his little gods were missing, right? So what is it that Jacob says? He says, get rid of them. The Hebrew word is cast them out. That's, so it's not just like, oh, here, stash them somewhere. It's like cast them out, okay, is that idea. Um, purify yourself, change your clothes, take the rings out of, your, out of your ears, do all those things that would have been physical manifestations of the worship of a false god, right? And, and so then what does Jacob do with all that? 
He buries it. Now, does, is that, does that strike you as odd? Why not melt them, you know? Why not crush them? What would be the significance of burying them? They're dead. Yes. He is indicating to them that they are not alive. They are just these uh, physical things. That's all they are. They're empty. They're dead. And so he gives them a proper burial. All right. Um, The other thing possibly that would, would go with that as well is that that would be a respectful way to deal with them. Right. Because he doesn't want to crush the spirit of the people that are working for him and part of his household. It would be rather insulting, I suppose, for him to just, uh, you know, smash him and bash him and that sort of thing, right? So he says, we're going to give him a proper burial and we'll put him underneath the uh, oak at, uh, at Shechem. So they get out on their journey. So what do you make of this terror of God fell on the towns so that then uh, nobody would go after him? What do you make of that? Terror of God. We've talked about this a little bit because that's not a term that is used today in many people's minds as they think of God. We think of God as, you know, our friend and he's, he's always willing to listen and, you know, stuff like that. He's a great counselor. That's what we think of God as. But here's the terror of God. So what would have been the value of this, do you think? Makes me think of the term. Pardon? Makes me think of the term putting the fear of God in there. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. Which, how many of you grew up hearing that, the fear of God? I'm going to put the fear of God in you. <laughs> so we instantly know what that is. Is that, do parents talk about that today? I'll put the fear of God in you. Anybody recall any of that recently in your parenting? I Of all the uh, parent classes that I've ever taken and, ta- and taught, I don't recall ever hearing that phrase being promoted as, uh, as something. Um, and so maybe we've lost a little bit in terms of thinking about that from a, from a God perspective, right? But again, thinking of this from a tribal point of view, right? If the tribal thinking is... You do something to me, I'm going to do it back to you twice as much, right? Okay? And I think Jacob's fears were well-founded, that here, you know, you've done this this to these people at, at Shechem. Um, now what's going to happen when the Canaanites and the Perizzites hear about it? They're going to get gang up, and they are way more than we are, right? So what's interesting is that God provides a protection for them. And it looks like he forgave them, doesn't it? I mean, they went and murdered and then justified it by saying, well, what they did to our sister. But basically, they, they murdered it. It was premeditated. It was planned that way. And yet, God doesn't seem to hold them responsible for that or accountable for that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Jacob didn't deal with the situation with diamonds. He did. He had a little bit wild and burned his own house. Yeah. Do you think he should have stepped in? I don't know what he should have done. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But I doubt he would have killed anybody. Would you have preferred that he would have uh, taken that? Well, I mean, is, is, is the head of the family to feel like that? Yeah. And also, the sentence maybe should have consulted you. Oh, the children should have talked to the parent ahead of time. Yeah, that would have been that would have been excellent if that if that had happened. Yeah, you sort of get the feeling though, and and again, I don't know enough about it to 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 say definitively, but you get the feeling that the sons were all adults by now, 
and they were going to do whatever they were going to do. And we're going to see that um, uh, that pattern will reemerge when Gina is teaching the class uh, with 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 respect to Joseph, because that's then we have our own mind and we're going to do what we want to do. And we don't really care how our parent raised us, right? Because uh, we know what's right and we're going to do what's right or we're going to do what feels right. How old do you think Jacob was? I don't know. You know, he he's made peace with Esau. He was away for 20 plus years. Let's assume that when he went to there in the first place, he was like 18 or 19. So he's in his late 30s you know 40 maybe again i don't it's hard to it's hard to figure that out because the sons are old enough to to uh kill people so they're they're i mean albeit incapacitated people but they're still old enough to do that they can wield the sword so i don't know it's hard it's hard anybody have any thoughts about that how old he might have been yeah and he might have been already sort of mentally checked out cuz he had other things that he was all about, and that was managing this mob of, you know, of of resources as they're getting ready to go back to uh, back to uh, where Isaac is. Okay, well, let's keep going. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz. That is Bethel. Remember, Luz was the name of the the local uh, name for the for the area in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside of Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Yisrael. What do you make of the name change? What do you make of that? It's a pretty significant moment when God renames you. Okay? There's a little bit of a sense of that it's a reminder that you are not your own person. Now you are my person. Okay? And and you, the special calling that you have in life now is really being uh, uh, forced into that very narrow place in terms of what I want uh, your life to be about. But what's interesting to me here is that that if we think in terms of what God is preparing uh, to have happen in the life of Jacob and or Israel and his descendants, okay, up to this point. They're very tribal. Now, because they're tribal, what that meant was, was that all the sons of Jacob, they all had their own little kingdoms. They all had their own little silos. They all had their own little sort of, well, this is my sovereign space, and this is my sovereign space, and your sovereign space better not creep into my sovereign space. Okay, it was very much a sibling sort of sort of deal here, right? And so if if it is in God's plan that part of the fulfillment of that plan is that somehow all of these sort of tribal entities are coalesced into one nation. How's that going to happen if they all still think of them in themselves individually? And so my sense of it here is, is that this is the first step as far as God is concerned in terms of the plan of taking this from this sort of loose federation of 
people that are related to each other by blood, and that's about the only interest they have in each other, right, into something greater and something more, uh, more unified. And so anyway, that's kind of the sense of that that, that that I have for this. And so we recall, what was the, prom- the original promise that God made to Abraham when he said, go, f- go from the land and I will show you? What did he say? I will make you great. Your name will be great and you will be a great nation. So we're getting now a little bit more of a, uh, of a honing of that, if you will. So verse 11, and God said to him, I am God almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it. So he's anointing the place. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel or Bethel. All right, so there's a a reiteration, if you will, of the original promise that was given to Abraham and to Isaac. And it's just another way of God saying, okay, Jacob, you're also in line of the covenant, but not just by blood, right? You're by faith also being called to to receive this. But notice the little promise that's extra there. I will give this land to your descendants after you. How far into the future does that promise extend? Very far because it was a condition. Pardon? Very far because the explanation really was made after they left Egypt. After they left Egypt, right? That's right. What about, what about beyond that? Because there are people today that would argue that this was an eternal promise and that today this land all belongs to Israel and Israel alone. And so now you get into the whole thing with uh, Palestinians and who owned the land before that and you know, two-state solution, all those kinds of things. Have you heard of Zionists before? Have you heard of that? That's a pretty hardcore group of, uh, of uh, people from Israel who look at this and say, this is our land forever because God gave it to us. Now, what would be the response to that? We've talked about this a little bit before, so I'm, I'm asking you to kind of remember something that we talked about last year. And I know that you can remember this, right? Okay, what, what kind of promise was this, conditional or unconditional? What kind of promise was it? And we see it all through the, it's all through the Old Testament. The land is yours if... You hold to my precepts, to my commands. You worship me only, no other gods, all that kind of stuff, all right? That's the danger if, and the caution, I suppose, is that sometimes you have to look at uh, a promise that's given in the Scripture and, and ask the question, is that a conditional promise or unconditional, right? Unconditional promise is when God says, I love you no matter what, right? Conditional promise is, you get to have this, but you have to follow my word. You have to hold to my commands. You have to worship me only. And you see, that became the, the, uh, the struggle 
for Israel all through its history, where, where we see right here Jacob saying, get rid of the foreign gods. That was like forever the thing that they were having to deal with because every place they went um, and every place they settled had uh, uh, a, poly, a polytheistic, not monotheistic. And so that was constantly the deal. How much of the culture, the local culture, are we going to absorb, which includes the religion of the culture, and how much of that are we going to be uh, standalone by ourselves? We deal with that today as well. How much of uh, how much of that culture can you absorb and still remain Christian? And that's getting harder and harder to do these days. Kenny, thoughts about that? All right, let's keep going. Good, you guys, you guys are having such mercy on Gina as we. Uh, she asked me, "Are we going to actually get done with the lesson?" And I said, "Gina, don't worry. Uh, even if we're not done, we will be done." So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be, we'll be okay. All right, so verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel, and while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is what? Ah, so now we start, see, some extra little things are being added to the story that because we know the rest of the story, like a thousand years later, we're able to say, oh, okay, that's a significant thing. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. So you sort of get this sense that some things are coming to an end, right? There's some some closure is occurring in the story as some things are kind of put to bed, so to speak. The the rift between uh, Jacob and Esau is healed, right? The the movement of everybody from uh, from uh, from Canaan over to, or from Shechem over to Bethel is part of this movement. God has the plan, and God is making that happen. Uh, and, and we're able to see that obviously because we're looking backward at the story. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. So we get this little unholy moment, right, in the story that of this massive thing that God is doing, and what we still have is human nature has not been cured, right? Human nature is still uh, alive and well, and we will see later if there's any ramification of that. Okay. By the way, Bilhah, what was what? What do we remember about her? She was the mother of some of the of some of the sons, right? Yeah. So this is a uh, this is not the best moment here uh, in terms of uh, the the story. So Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of, Je of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad and Asher. 
These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So now the stage is set for Jacob to finally take hold of not just the, uh, uh, the birthright and the inheritance, but also as the carrier and the one responsible to, for, for whom or through whom the covenant would, would continue. Okay? All right, thoughts about this? Yeah, it's kind of an anticlimactic uh, end to that, is it not? Yeah. It seems like when they tricked Isaac in the first place, yeah, you know, it. when you think about Jacob coming back, the biggest step of that was that he had to face his brother. But that wasn't the only one that he had to face, was it, when he came back, right? Because he would have to somehow come back and also make amends with his father Isaac because that's who ultimately was betrayed. I mean, I mean Isaac became party un, uh, unknowing of course but he was party to that to that deception and then couldn't change it after it had already occurred all right well we have like five minutes left do you want to go through the uh, family line of Esau I don't but feel free to do that okay <laughs> and so anyway uh, Gina again thank you for taking the class next week and we'll uh, look forward to that uh, ask her all the questions you want. Feel free to do that, and she'll handle it with much grace and uh, then defer to the next class after that. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for, as we think about how you, your grace and your love for, for mankind through the covenant and that ended up with Jesus, it's just amazing how you kept it alive, and you kept it uh, working through uh, even the even the failings of of human nature, as we've seen in the story of of Jacob and and of course Isaac and also Abraham. That should give us great comfort, Lord, that uh, you're able to work your amazing uh, gifts of grace even through and with people like us every day, because we have our failings as well. So. Uh, keep us mindful of that. Let, let us never uh, uh, sell ourselves short in terms of what you can do with us and through us, and then give us opportunities, Lord, to serve you and to show our love for you every single day. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be, be with also uh, our, one of our families in our group, the Bob Orr family, as, uh, as Susan died this, uh, this past week. We pray that uh, you'll be with him and comfort uh, him and his family. And we, of course, uh, will miss also uh, the wonderful gift that Susan brought to our, to our class. So watch over us this week. Be with us, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name.